Hi, this is Pastor Robert Blanchard from Lansing First United Methodist Church here in Lansing, Michigan. I just want to take a moment to thank you for checking out our sermon podcast. And if you want to learn more about what we do here at Lansing First, or you want to support us in our mission of going deep, reaching out, and loving Lansing, you can do so online at lansingfirst.org. Thanks. Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Job, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6 and 10 through 17. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations. And Job died, old and full of days. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your word. And we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning to transform us in heart and mind and soul. Amen. Like I said we would, we've returned back to the book of Job to see how this story ends. If we think back to a few weeks ago, we can remember that Job was a blameless man in the land of Uz who was beset by a number of devastating events after Satan accused Job of only being faithful to God because God had blessed him with health, wealth, and family. God, though, had faith in his servant Job's righteousness and allowed the accuser to take everything away from Job in a test of Job's trust in God. Job's wife became his first earthly accuser when she told him that it would be better for him to curse God and die rather than remain faithful in the face of all that had been done to him. To which Job asked whether we're meant only to accept the good things in life from God and not the bad. 
Then his friends became his accusers as they confidently asserted that Job must have lacked righteousness. Finally, Job, in his frustration, demanded an answer from God. Were his friends right? Had there been some reason for his suffering? Was he not blameless? And let's keep in mind that Job was blameless. Sometimes things happen for reasons we don't understand. So two weeks ago in our readings, out of the whirlwind appeared God before Job. We, along with Job, were reminded of our own smallness, of the limits of our strength and power in the universe. We were reminded of the absolute sovereignty uh, that God has over all things in creation. It was God who set the heavens in motion. It was God who laid the foundations of the earth. It was God who breathed life into all things. And it is God who sees all things as they truly are, who sees on an infinite cosmic scale rather than a finite human one. God displayed for Job all his power as the transcendent creator. But then, last week, before we could see Job's response, we took a sharp detour. We suddenly veered right back into the book of Isaiah, and there we saw a very different side of God's nature. There we read of Isaiah's vision of a suffering servant who would bear all the transgressions of humanity within himself. And from that text, we reflected on the suffering that was endured by Jesus Christ, our God-made flesh, through the eyes of Julian of Norwich. This vision was not one of God, the transcendent creator. No, this was a vision of God, the humble, suffering servant, who, to borrow from the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in the last two weeks, we've seen God revealed in both the immutable, immortal, impassable, transcendent creator and in the immediate, mortal, suffering Messiah. We have seen the paradox of our God laid bare, a God who is above all things, and a God who has such love as to become a part of all things. And now, this week, we are seeing the response to that revelation. What does Job have to say for himself as he stands before God? I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to speak which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And we can almost hear an echo of Paul in this statement. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then... We will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
Of course, we only ever see partially the reality of God while we are in this life. It was common in John Wesley's time to speak of the spiritual senses, just like our physical senses. It was understood that just as there are differences in our physical sight and our physical hearing, there are differences in our spiritual sight and our spiritual hearing. We are each only able to perceive so much of the reality of God. And so what does Job say when he realizes how little he has truly understood of the world and of God? Because yes, Job was blameless before this moment, but even so, this is a moment of conversion for Job. He has been convicted of his ignorance as the grace of God, which is to say the power and presence of God, makes itself manifest. And so what does Job say? I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And maybe that makes you a little bit uncomfortable because that is strong language. Maybe you hear that phrase, I despise myself, and you think, yeah, I don't know if I want to worship a God that creates self-loathing in people. And it's okay if that is your gut reaction because Job's response is an intense response. But let's see if we can reframe this just a little bit. If we can shift our reaction to it by shifting our understanding of what Job is really saying. I despise myself. Now, does Job mean that he hates who he is? He hates his life? He hates what God has made him to be? No, clearly not. We've already seen Job's gratitude toward God earlier on in this book. So what is it that Job is saying he despises? He despises the part of him that doubted God. He despises the part of him that assumed to know God's mind. He despises the ignorance that he had until this moment. In other words, we could understand Job as saying that he hates the part of himself that had been subject to sin, the part of him that created separation between God and himself. Now that's a totally different thing than self-loathing, and I hope that we could all say the same thing as Job. In fact, if you've been baptized, you either made that confession already for yourself or others made it for you. But if that's where we stopped, then that would still be an uncomfortable place for me too. We call the news that we have to share with people the gospel, the good news, And if we stop it, hey, there's an emptiness or a brokenness in you, and we don't have a follow-up, then we're not actually giving people good news. So what comes next? I repent in dust and ashes. Repentance is one of those good church words that we use all the time, and maybe we don't always do a good job of explaining. It's the kind of word that you're not likely to hear outside of the church too often, but Here's what it means. If I repent, that means that I am turning toward God. I am turning my face away from sin, and I am refocusing my attention, my effort, my energy on God. Last week, 
As we reflected on the cross, I said that we can't skip past Good Friday to get to Easter because the joy of resurrection has no joy without the sorrow of the cross. Well, the same is true of our own faith life. We can't skip past confession and repentance because the joy of righteousness has no meaning without the sorrow of our sin. And let me see if I can find another way to say that, to help make the point clear. If the call to Christ makes no change in the way that we live our lives, then we're not actually being called to Christ. If the good news of the gospel presents no meaningful alternative to the ways of the world, if it does not help us to be transformed, to grow more fully into the image of God in which we have been created, then it's not the gospel. Job's story is a story about loss on a material level, but it is also a story about gaining an appreciation for what has always been true on a spiritual level. This week, a friend of mine shared a quote with me from a book called Searching for and Maintaining Peace, a small treatise on peace of the heart by Father Jacques Philippe. He writes, Let us then be convinced of this, and it will be for us a source of immense strength. God may allow me to occasionally lack money, health, ability, and virtues, but he will never leave me in want of himself, of his assistance and his mercy, or of anything that would allow me to grow unceasingly ever closer to him, to love him more intensely, to better love my neighbor, and to achieve holiness. In other words... There is only one thing needful for peace and joy in this life, God's grace. Before I wrap up, I want to consider just one last part of this story. That last paragraph, verses 10 through 17, Job gets a happily ever after. He gets to have double the wealth, and he gains as many children as he had before, and he gets to live a nice, long life. There are some preachers who will make promises that if you love God well enough, and if God loves you well enough, that this is what you'll get too. You'll be blessed with health and wealth, and everything will go exactly the way that you want it to. But that's to miss the point. Of this story. Yes, God makes all things whole for Job, but his new sons and daughters can't replace the love that he had for his children who died. Regaining his wealth can't undo the pain and the mockery that he endured. To pin our hopes on such worldly things is to worship the things themselves. God has promised to make all things whole. This is true. But God has promised to do so in the fullness of God's own time, in a way of God's own choosing. And the example of Christ on the cross should always keep us aware of the fact that God doesn't work in the ways that the world expects. So until that time when we will see God face to face ourselves, 
We are called to keep turning our face toward God whenever we find ourselves distracted and turning away. We are to be assured that we will never be found wanting for God's presence. We are to grow into the image of Christ by loving God and loving our neighbors. Amen. Please pray with me. God, fix our hearts and minds on you, the one thing in creation that we need to be happy. Let our eyes always be searching for you. Let our ears always be listening for you. Let us be emptied of ourselves so that your spirit might fill us with your grace and we might have deep and abiding faith, hope, and love. Amen.